Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, and uh, we're in week two of a 10-week series on the Ten Commandments, and we're, work- we're looking at each commandment sort of one at a time, week by week. And last week we looked at uh, commandment number one, this morning we'll look at uh, the second commandment. If you've been to a wedding, particularly a wedding recently, and this is kind of wedding season, I've got two to officiate coming up, and I just officiated one, and I've got one that I hope to just attend. Um, you know that there are a variety of elements that are you know, part of a wedding, and uh, people include different things. But one thing that every wedding includes, which is actually central to the ceremony, are the vows. Uh, the vows are critical because it's by way of the vows uh, that a man and a woman actually enter into this covenant with and before God. And so they establish that covenant with each other and before God. And that's why the vows are so central. We know from the Scriptures that uh, biblical love finds its deepest fulfillment in a lifelong commitment, that is, in, in one person giving himself or herself to another person without conditions, without reservations, without footnotes. Um, and so the vows help to communicate that. Now, over the years, I've, um, I've had a lot of people over the years say, hey, can we write our own vows? And I've said, sure, just send them to me first so I can take a look. And, you know, sometimes creative types, they like to include some things, and I sort of I'll hit them back and say, is this really what, what you want to commit to? Is this really what you're trying to say here? And maybe we'll make a revision or, or another. Most people go with the standard vows, and uh, you've heard those, I'm sure. They usually go something like this. Uh, I, Bill, take you, Sharon, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness as in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Those are the traditional vows. But what if a man instead decided to write his own vows, and he said this, I, Bill, take you, Sharon, for the woman that I can shape you to be. I promise to love the woman that I form you into. I pledge to mold you and shape you into a version very much like my mother. You may not be everything I dreamed of, but by the time I'm done with you, you will most certainly be an object of great desire. I promise today to commit myself to an image of what I hope that one day you will be. Now, I've never had a man actually say that to a woman. He'd probably get slapped if he did. Uh, I have people write some creative vows, but never that one. But I use that because I think that gives us an idea of what it's like to commit ourselves to God as we imagine that He is, or to pledge to worship God as we believe he ought to be, or as we believe we can kind of make him to be. Uh, This is a picture, again, of what we do when we we worship God. We insist on making God in our own image. Uh, When we determine to worship him in the way that we desire, instead of the way that he has prescribed in Scripture. Uh, Last week we looked at the first commandment, which is really about worshiping the right God. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And when he says before me, he's not saying, well, as long as those other gods sort of fall in line behind me, I'm okay. He's saying, no, you shall not worship any other gods. I will not be co-worshipped with any other so-called god. So last week, the command was really about worshiping the right god. And today, the second command is about worshiping uh, the right god the right way. So really, it's about how we worship the true uh, and living God. Uh, the living God of the Bible who delivered and saved Israel, then called them to worship Him alone. 
And he called them to worship him in a, in a way that he would actually command. The Lord rescued the people of Israel because he loved them. It wasn't because they were greater than any of the other nations. It wasn't because they were more powerful. Uh, in fact, we can actually say pretty clearly they were the, among the least powerful of the nations. And yet God loved them anyway. We might say that God loved them because he loved them. From Mount Sinai... God established a covenant with His people and then ratified that covenant by giving in the Ten Commandments. They were written by the finger of God. Now, now as we saw last week, these weren't the rules that people were to obey in order to belong to God. These were the way way that God people would relate to the God who had already rescued them. God rescued them so that they would obey Him. They didn't obey God so that He would rescue them. It's gospel and then law. It's free acceptance by faith alone, and then, and only then, expectation. God didn't give the Israelites the commands until Exodus chapter 20, and uh, we see the Ten Commandments there, but but chapters 1 through 19 really outline and highlight God's miraculous saving activity in securing and preserving and sustaining a people for Himself. So we have 19 chapters of God's uh, salvation by grace. The Dutch theologian uh, Joachim Duma writes this, The commandments follow the gospel of undeserved deliverance. Now, if there's anything I want you to remember, I hope you remember through this series, and I hope you understand the commands better and how they apply and what it means to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the commands. But if there's one thing I hope you remember, it's actually a message of grace, namely that in Christ you are accepted before you obey by faith. You're accepted by faith before you obey. God rescues you. He delights in you before He asks you to do anything. And what God actually asks us to do is not to keep us down. It's not to to eliminate pleasure. It's not to hold us back. It's actually for our own flourishing, for our own good. So Exodus chapter 20, as I mentioned last week, we'll kind of build each week on the previous passage. So let me begin by reading verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. It reads this way. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it kind of worked like this in the ancient Near Eastern world. Of course, there are all kinds of religions and all kinds of cultures, but what people would do is they would take a piece of stone and they would chisel into it a statue of some sort, or they would take a piece of wood and they would carve out of it a statue. Or they would take gold or silver and they would fashion those things into statues. And then they would bow down and they would worship before these statues. Now sometimes, most of the time it wasn't this way, but sometimes they actually believed that what they had in front of them was the very God. So this is actually the God in front of me. Now that's not the way it was most of the time. They were, most of the time they were a little more sophisticated than that. What they believed was what they had in front of them was kind of like an electric transformer by which they could actually sort of harness the power of God or enjoy the presence of God sort of mediated before them. So most of the time they didn't really think that this was actually the God in front of them, but this was a way to sort of tap into 
the presence and the power of God. Um, well, well, Israel, uh, the people of God's covenant, they did the same thing. We see it throughout the Old Testament. They tried to kind of bring God before them, kind of harness God, worship Him in a way that was a little more palatable by creating an image of some sort, a statue of some sort. And most of the time, again, in the ancient Near Eastern world, these were statues of real animals. It might be a cow, it might be a bull, it might be uh, uh, an, an eagle, it might be an elephant. And sometimes, especially with the sort of the Canaanites, some of the far religions, they would maybe even conflate an animal. So you might have a statue of a cow with an elephant's trunk or something like that. But they had these in front of them, and they believed that they could actually sort of harness the power and presence of their God. And what Israel did is they would try to worship the living God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, by way of one of these statues. What they did is they worshiped the right God, but the wrong way. And this is really what's behind the second commandment. Again, it's a prohibition against, work, against worshiping the right God the wrong way, against worshiping the true God falsely. Now, here's why, and this is our first point. How we worship God matters nearly as much to God as whom we worship. Now, this is a line uh, Philip Ryken uh, said in one of his sermons, but I thought it was really good. It's, how we worship God matters nearly as much to God as whom we worship. Now, there's a great example of this, a, a very powerful example in 2 Kings in the Scriptures. Um, Jehu was uh, the king of Israel who kind of succeeded by a couple of generations, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Uh, now, you maybe remember those names. In fact, there was a period, and maybe it's still going on today, but there was a period when a lot of Christians were naming their kids Bible names, which I think is wonderful and fine. Um, but you never heard, I never heard any girl named Jezebel. And this is because Jezebel was one of the most uh, duplicitous, wicked, heinous uh, people around. And what King Ahab did, along with Jezebel, is they sort of, they started the worship of the Baals. And some of you hear it called Baals, but it's actually the Baals. And the Baals were actually, they were, they were foreign uh, gods. It's kind of a catch-all sort of umbrella phrase. Sometimes the, the Baals used to describe the Canaanite god of fertility. But what, what King Ahab did, along with Jezebel, is they, they, had, they, they got hundreds of prophets of the Baals. They started erecting these statues to, to be worshipped all over the place. So God tells Jehu, who follows uh, shortly thereafter, he says, I want you to obliterate all the prophets, all the statues to the Baals. And this is what Jehu did. Now, at one point, though, this is, at one point, because of King Ahab and, and Jezebel, things had gotten so bad that there were only 7,000 people left who were truly worshipping the living God. And you think about it, an entire nation, 7,000, that's like the population of Demopolis, Alabama. So it's not much, right? So just a few people. This is all there were left as far as worshipers of the true God. So God tells Jay, he wants you to wipe every hint and trace of the Baals. And he does that. And the Lord commends him for it. Here's what 2 Kings tells us. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So the golden calves were meant to represent Yahweh, the living God of Israel. The people weren't worshiping false gods, necessarily. They were worshiping God, but in a way that he had expressly forbidden. 
They were worshiping, again, the right God, but the wrong way. Now, we might think, what's the big deal? I mean, what's the big deal if you have an image in front of you, if you just use that to sort of worship God? And the big deal is human created images of God, so things we kind of make on our own, are efforts to reduce God to something or someone that we can handle, someone who, uh, who can, we can manage, someone we can control, even manipulate. That same uh, Dutch theologian, Joachim Duma that, Duma, that I quoted a minute ago, he said that when, we, when, when humans, when we try to approach God in ways that he has said not to, um, it's, it's kind of like we're trying to put God on a leash, to walk God on a leash. I mean, think about that imagery. Janine and I walk most nights in our neighborhood, and we've got a path that we walk. We were walking the other day, and there was another family, a couple, they were walking their dog on the other side of the street. They were going in the same direction, but they were, we were across the street from them. And we noticed that the dog had its leash kind of between all four of its legs. And so whenever it would try to go in one direction, it would kind of grimace in pain. And it just so happened there was another couple who were coming the opposite direction. They stopped this family and said, oh, did, you, did you notice that your, you got your, your dog's tangled up in his leash? And they said, no, we do that as a way to kind of teach our dog a lesson not to stray, you know, one way or the other. Now think about this. When we try to worship God and insist on worshiping God by our own ways, in ways that He has not commanded, in fact, in ways that He has expressly commanded us not to worship, Duma says it's like we're trying to walk God on a leash. It's a very scary thought, isn't it? Now, none of us in this room, as far as I know, have any carved images at home that we actually pull down from the shelf and worship, but we certainly are all prone to worshiping the right God wrongly. Now, how do we do that? Let me just give you a few examples of worshiping the true God falsely. The first one is human-centered worship. Human-centered worship, we, we, we still have God as the expressed object. In other words, we're still singing praises to God, but what we really hope to get out of our worship is we hope to be stirred emotionally ourselves. So the real point of our gathering is, is so that we can leave sort of feeling better. Maybe, uh, you know, on top of the world, feeling like we can take on the world. In fact, several years ago, there was a guy and his family who started attending the church that I was serving. And um, they'd come from a mega church in our area. And they, they started coming once a month. And they would go to the other church the other three weeks. And then they started coming more than that. And eventually it was every week. And he came up to me after, after one Sunday after service and said, you know, we really love this church. And there's a great sense of community. People seem to really, really care about each other and we're learning so much on Sunday mornings and so on. But he said, the other pastor said, I hate to tell you this, but his sermons were way more motivational than yours. I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, we just, just left feeling like we could just take on the world and tackle any problem. And I said, well, how did that work for you? He said, well, you see, we're not there anymore. And I said, well, what happened? He said, we would, we would leave sort of feeling like we can take on the world. But the first time that I was impatient with my wife or yelled at my kids or had an impure thought or lusted after someone or whatever. He said, I realized that this is not helping me. This, this sort of a message of self-actualization is not really doing anything for me long term. Well, the sort of worship that God desires, and of course preaching is worship as well, is foundationally about God. Revering, exalting, honoring, glorifying, praising God for who he is and for his acts of grace and redemption. Of course, particularly for his provision in Jesus Christ. Uh, Terry Johnson explains this beautifully in an article in Table Talk magazine. He says this, 
The Christian life begins with a Copernican revolution when it takes place when I remove myself from the center of the universe and I recognize that God alone reigns there. Nowhere should this revolution be more obvious than in the worship of the church. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't mean that hopefully my sermons are unmotivational. It doesn't mean that they're discouraging. It doesn't mean that our worship, we should approach our worship as sort of heartless automatons where we just sort of go in a robotic, robotic fashion. No, we should be inspired. We should be overwhelmed by God's majesty, His power, His love, His, mer- His mercy. Our worship should enlarge our view of God. It should deepen our faith. It should comfort our souls. It should reassure us of His faithfulness and steadfast love. So we may not leave a worship gathering confident that we can conquer the world. But we do leave confident that the world cannot conquer us. Because the God who has rescued us and loved us will continue to sustain us. Now, if you want to consider this more, Pastor Chris uh, put together a great video on Facebook about a month ago. Uh, It's very well done. You You can access that there. Let me give you the second way that we falsely worship the true God. And that is by individualized worship. Now, I may need to hide behind the pulpit here for what I'm about to say. And this one doesn't give me a lot of protection, uh, frankly. But um, because I'm going to criticize a a much-beloved hymn. But I ask you to bear with me for just a moment. Individualized worship is that notion that I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses And the voice I hear as I tarry there, none other has ever known. Where does that notion come from? That's not in the Bible. Where is this idea that that I have the most special relationship with God, that the things He says to me, no one else has even heard? This is an unbiblical notion. As I wrote in an email I sent out a couple of weeks ago, biblical worship is actually a corporate exercise intended to be something in which the entire Christian assembly participates. Now, we looked at this a little bit last week in the context of the Ten Commandments that, of course, it was a very heinous and terrible thing that that Pharaoh actually held captive as slaves the Israelite people. But that wasn't the worst thing he did. It wasn't simply his determined to hold them as slaves, although that was horribly wrong and terribly heinous. But what was so offensive, ultimately, is that that Pharaoh was preventing God's people from gathering together to worship Him collectively. In fact, what does God tell Moses to say to Pharaoh when he confronts him? He says, And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. The Hebrew word for serve there, it means to keep a feast. It means to sacrifice. It means to gather together with the intent of exalting and worshiping. God's people were to be released from their bondage to Pharaoh in order to worship together the true and living God. Now consider the language of the Psalms, Israel's own worship book, Psalm 95. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, O families of the peoples. Psalm 99, let all the peoples praise your great and awesome name. Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them give thanks to the Lord. And if you look at the New Testament, this concept of gathering together is is even more pronounced. 
more pronounced. Now, this is really, it's cre created a bit of a discussion for us at the elder level, the pastoral level. And I'm just letting you in on some of our discussions. And that is we're, we have said from the very beginning to people, like, if you feel, if you're immunocompromised, if, if you want to wait or delay to come back as a family, we respect that, we understand that, and we fully honor that. And that's how we feel. We want people to come back when they're ready, and we don't want people to take unnecessary risks. However, staying away indefinitely is not a viable option biblically. So there may be some, and I realize I'm kind of preaching to the choir this morning because you're here, but there may be some who have said, you know what, I, I like this sort of staying home in my pajamas and, and, and having a cup of coffee while, while I'm sitting in front of the TV. This is kind of the ideal scenario for me. But the reality is that never ever will be a substitute for God's people gathering together. It's just not what we were intended to do. So yes, so if you're watching online, I say, look, take your time. You return to us when you're ready. And if you have, again, issues that you feel immunocompromised, please, again, we're not asking anybody to rush back. But I would say it is important to carefully consider when will be the right time because we can't continue like this forever. Individualized worship is worshiping the true God in a false way. Here's another way. It's ritualistic worship, sometimes referred to as formalism. And this is where the, the church has very specific practices, very specific rhythms that are, that are exercised in a very specific way. And by doing those things, the church feels like or believes that I'm actually sort of endearing myself to God because we have a very specific liturgy. I'm not against liturgy. And I'm certainly not against traditions. It's not that traditions are, are bad. In fact, uh, Jesus himself left us some traditions. We celebrate um, what we call the, the ordinance of the, of the Lord's table or communion, which is something we do once a month here. We gather every Sunday at 1030, and that, that's a tradition that we have. So it's not a matter of traditions themselves being bad, but when any rhythm, any practice, any level of specificity becomes the means to pleasing God in our minds, we've actually lost the essence of biblical worship. If we trace God's interaction with His people throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that what made Israel's worship deplorable to God on so many occasions was not that they weren't following the letter of the law, but rather their worship was dead. Formalism had replaced hearts that were eager to rejoice in the Creator and, and in return serve their neighbor in love. Now, if you want to know, how do we know if a church has become purely ritualistic or formalistic in their worship? Well, I think we can ask the question this, this way, is our, are our hearts moved to glorify God in humble gratitude and serve our neighbor more? Why did God condemn the worship of Israel and the minor prophets? Because they were ignoring the marginalized and the helpless among them while they were keeping very strict regimens in terms of their worship. R.C. Sproul says this, worship was not transforming men and women into people who promoted God's standards in every sphere. It merely papered over their ill treatment of the weakest members of society. The false worshipers there, thereby assured themselves that all was fine when really they were facing the Lord's judgment. So we don't ever want to be the sort of church, and praise God we're not, where we come and we make sure that everything is, is polished and pristine and we follow a very sp a specific order, but we care nothing about the weak 
and the hurting and the oppressed and the marginalized among us. Here's a final way that we practice false worship. That is by imaginative worship. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we can't use our imagination as we think about what God has in store for us. In fact, imagination is a gift of God. And so we should use our imaginations as we actually contemplate all that God has in store for those who are in Christ. What I'm talking about when I say imaginative worship is we worship God in the way that we imagine He should be. You ever had anyone say to you, yeah, well, I just don't believe that God would do blank. I don't believe God would actually want us to blank. Or I don't know, this doesn't seem like what God would say to me. Whenever someone says that to me, I always say, hopefully in a loving way, I say, um, based on what though? You say that this is not, you don't believe this is what God would do, but based on what? Well, it's just, I just don't feel like God would do that. I say, well, but that's not authoritative, is it? What you believe to be about God. Imaginative worship is, is, we still say we're worshiping God. He's still the one whose praise is on our lips. But it's actually a God that we fashion to be in our own minds, which ends up actually being no substitute for the true God. Now, what's the solution? And it's our second point. Acceptable worship is fueled by faith and rooted in God's self-revelation. God has spoken to us. He has revealed Himself to us. And I had a professor who one time said one of the most amazing, incredible things is that God actually spoke to us. He didn't have to. He has revealed Himself to us by creation. So we look and we see the eternality of God, the power of God, the very presence of God. He's revealed Himself to, through the written Word, through the, the, the unfolding drama of redemption. So He's revealed Himself in that way. God has revealed Himself to be a very specific, uh, in a specific way, and our worship of God must be consistent with God's self-revelation, who He is and who He shows Himself to be. Now, who does He show Himself to be? Well, we get a glimpse of it even in this passage. Look at verses 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them, that is the carved images, or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, when we read that at a surface level, that's pretty frightening. Because it seems like what God is saying is, I'm going to punish people for the, the sins of their fathers and their grandfathers. Let me just make a couple of notes here that I think help to understand this. Um, the Hebrew word translated iniquity is a term that refers to a very twisted act. This is a father who has tried to twist and manipulate and use God. This is a father who's tried to manage the God of the universe for his own purposes. Now, it doesn't mean, even that sort of father doesn't mean that God will punish children if they have bad examples of dads. God punishes each person for his or her own sin, not the sin of another. Remember when Jesus was walking along the road and they came across a blind man, the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his father? And Jesus said, no, that's not the way that it works. A second point to note is that the children also hate God. Verse 5 says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Those who hate me, that actually modifies the third and fourth generation. So it's not, it's talking about children and grandchildren who continue to perpetuate the hatred of God that their father exemplified, which is no surprise really. 
because what they saw was their father use God, try to use God, use and proclaim Christianity, but nothing in his life ever matched up with that. He used God for his own advancement, but there was no submission to God. There was no faith in God. And so that hatred actually continues generation after generation. It's actually a very harrowing thought for us as parents that we have, it's, it's a call to parents to actually introduce their children and to shepherd the hearts of their children in the way of God as He has revealed Himself to be. Not the God the way the pundits describe our culture esteems, but actually the real God has revealed Himself to be. It's not surprising, again, that the children hate God when they've seen the way their father, again, uh, tried to manipulate God. Now, God does, does hold parents accountable for the way they train and shepherd their children. But notice that the God, the God also reveals that He is a God of steadfast love to thousands. So the blessing is deeper and richer and more profound than the curse. It continues generation after generation after generation to thousands, whereas the curse, we're told, to three and four generations. I love what Philip Ryken says. He says, God's threat in the second commandment may seem discouraging to someone who comes from a family that does not honor God. But God's blessing triumphs over God's curse, and God often intervenes in the history of a family to turn their hatred into love and worship. He does what He did for Abraham. He calls the family to leave its idols behind and follow Him. And when God does that, He establishes a lasting legacy. His grace rests on a family from one generation to the next. So maybe this is your story. It's certainly my story. God took my family, my parents, separated by divorce, a mother who was an alcoholic and didn't know anything about church, didn't know anything about going to church, what people did at church. And God miraculously intervened by His grace, saving my mother and saving my sister and me, and by God's grace, saving my children. And so we see how God miraculously intervenes by His grace. Now, of course, this is no guarantee that our kids will love God and follow Him. Kids, when they, when they grow up, you know, they, they make their own decisions. And while we continue to shepherd their hearts, uh, you know, they're going to do their own thing. And any parent of adult children knows this. But this is a promise to be received by faith. It's a covenant promise to be received by faith. And what this means is if you had a dad who did not honor God, maybe you have a, a dad who uh, maybe said, I don't even believe God exists. Or maybe you had a dad, and, and maybe he claimed to be a Christian, but you saw nothing even resembling interest in the spiritual things you know, through the week. It doesn't mean you have to worry about God's punishment. It doesn't believe that God's going to hold against you, uh, you know, the, the, the sins and offenses of your own father. Um, but what it does mean, if you're in Christ, that God, it's just, it's just a greater emphasis of the fact that God has rescued you. God has rescued you. If you have a father who was a godly man who, who uh, brought you up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that too is an example of God's grace and His faithfulness in your life. Now, having said all this, that this morning, there is one image of God, we might say. There is one image of God that we are not only permitted to worship, but in fact commanded to worship. We've talked in this series about how the Scriptures, all the Scriptures, even the Ten Commandments point to Jesus. Well, here, the Christ connection is so beautiful and so rich. 
The Apostle Paul says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians 1. A chapter later, the same apostle would say this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So here's the final point this morning. God has revealed himself most arrestingly, indeed perfectly, through the person of his Son. So we look out, we go out today, you'll leave the building, you'll look out. If it's anything like it was when I came in this morning, it's going to be partly sunny day. You see the clouds, you see the depth. You see, we, see, we look in the sky, we look at creation, and we're, we're made aware that there really is a God. And He's always existed, and He's powerful. And then God further reveals Himself, again, through this unfolding drama of redemption, which we know is the written Word of God. He reveals himself through the word of God, but he reveals himself most clearly, most powerfully, most arrestingly through the person of Jesus Christ. So when we look at, we want to know what God is like, and Martin Luther said we need to stop trying to climb up into the heavens, into the mind of God, and what we need to do is look at Jesus. In Christ, we see God, again, most clearly. In fact, in Christ, we see God perfectly. Jesus reveals to us the very person and character of God. If you were with us through our study uh, through the Gospel of John, um, and the Lord just ministered so much to me through my own preparation in that study. But in John 8, there's that great passage where the religious leaders are they're confronting Jesus. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And Jesus says to them, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, he's doing a couple things there. He's invoking the divine name, I am. Remember, you may remember from an earlier chapter of Exodus where Moses said, but I don't, what am I going to say to these people when I go to them? How am I going to get them to listen to me? Who do I say sent them? And, and God says, tell them I am sent you. So Jesus is, in John 8, he's invoking the divine name, but he's doing something else. He's also saying, I was actually the one there at creation. I'm the one who put the stars in their place. I'm the one who made the world. John 1 tells us that nothing was made without him. And so Jesus is saying, I, when you look at me, what you're seeing is the very God of the universe. Now, you may be hearing these Ten Commandments, and you think, man, we've only made it through two, and it seems like God is a real stickler. He seems just impossible to please, this, this ruthless deity, relentless and uncaring. Here's a God who makes all these commands and all these demands, a God who, who's not gracious. But if that's the picture you have of God so far, let me just say to you, it's not the right picture. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see the character of God. When we see the way that Jesus welcomed the outcast and the unclean and the marginalized and the beaten down and the sinful, we actually see the mercy of God. When we see that Jesus, he climbs up, to the, he's at the top of this mountain, he looks down, he sees this city, and he weeps. And these weren't the sort of glamorous single tears that trickled down his He's actually, he's hunched over. He's in agony. He's weeping because he sees his own people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. When we read that, we see the compassion of God. When we see Jesus actually speaking to the clouds in the storm, he tells the storm to stop and to push back. 
we see on display the very power of God. When we see Jesus on the cross, hanging there, dying for an undeserving people, for you and me, we see the amazing love of God on display. And when we see Jesus crying out to God from the cross on behalf of the hardened criminal, and then promising that same criminal that he would be with Jesus that very same day, we see the very depth of God's forgiveness. This guy didn't have a chance to go prove himself to God. He was going to die hours later. He didn't have a chance to actually show everyone that his repentance was genuine. We see the depth of the forgiveness of God who will not hold against his people any sins they have committed when they repent and turn to Jesus. Yeah, God does make demands. He makes demands. But he provides what he demands. He is the furthest thing possible from being a hard and uncaring deity. He loved us so much that he sent his son. And remember what Jesus says over and over. So beautiful in John's gospel. He says, no, the Father loves you. So he said, look, just in case you think I've come, the Father's sort of, uh, you know, reluctantly going to receive, and he really doesn't, didn't want me to come. He said, no, Jesus says over and over, the Father loves you. As the Father loves you, so do I. We see in Jesus this majestic and powerful, incredible love of God, His mercy and His forgiveness. When God instructed the Israelites not to make any graven image of Him, He was actually pointing to a time when He would reveal Himself more clearly than ever through the person and work of His Son, the one who is the very image of the invisible God. And as we reflect on worshiping God that way, the way He has prescribed, We can only fully understand that God by beholding Jesus. He may not reveal himself in theophanies anymore. He may not show up uh, in a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire or, or whatever. But he speaks to us in the person of his son. And in his son he has revealed himself as a God who is, yes, powerful and strong and fear inducing and awe inspiring and transcendent and certainly above our figuring out but also a God who is compassionate, who is kind, who is merciful, who is loving, who is forgiving, who extends His chesed, His his loving, His covenant faithfulness and love generation to generation. Now, as we think about worshiping that God, let me just close with this. If if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Wardrobe, there's this great chapter where Uh, Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, who's the ruler of Narnia, is a a great lion. He is indeed the great lion. Well, Susan is surprised by this. She goes, oh, I I, I thought he he was a man. He's a lion? And then she says... I shall shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. She said, oh, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I'll tell you that, and he's good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning as the living God, as the good and gracious King. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as our hearts are so easily enraptured by and captivated by other things. 
we allow the pursuit of career or reputation or, or money or whatever it is. We allow all of those things to capture our hearts. And they are, we know in fact, certainly lesser loves. But you redeem us and you rescue us and you snatch us from the pit. Not only the pit of rebellion, you deliver us from our own self-salvation efforts making us aware of our own brokenness and bringing us to a place of repentant faith. What can we say, Lord? What can we say except thank you? How can we thank you, Lord? You have rescued us. You have saved us. You have delivered us from such lesser loves. Be exalted in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.